what indeed are your thoughts? It, it's a beautiful passage. It, it almost reminds me of, you know, a passage from uh, the brothers, Karamazov, of, you know, when, when that kid got hit, hit in the stones and then uh, Alyosha went to help him. And it, it's a very touching episode, I guess. <laughs> I agree with you. And I think that this idea of God looking after one, even though he is rejected, is such a, a good idea. And perhaps you can view it as the man ostracized from society, the guy pushed away. Uh, and and it doesn't matter necessarily whether they're the moral, the mo- perhaps the moral nature of, of, of said a man or said being, but rather it is truly just the, perhaps the relationship or perhaps the, it is the, it is them intrinsically being human such that God cares for them. And that's perhaps what's being illustrated here. So it's a search in universalism inside Christianity and perhaps also inside Judaism that the the ones outside the order of society or the ones expelled from it, the so-called misfits are, are listened by God, which is literally what Ishmael means. God listens. Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting idea, though. I think whenever we're using universalism idea, it is a very um, kind of a theologically twisted term in the sense that some view it as everyone goes to heaven, though I don't necessarily agree with that notion either, but I think rather it is kind of the potential that we're talking about here, and that is the most important thing. It's not necessarily the guarantee of a certain saviour, but rather the potential of a certain salvation, which is important. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes, because if everyone goes to heaven, then no one goes to heaven, or if if everyone gets the chance to go to heaven, then no judgment is made between good people and bad people. That's what I've also been thinking about in terms of guilt. If everyone's guilty, then in some sense, no one's guilty. So mm-hmm. you, you have one has to differentiate both perhaps thinking about our current culture of talking about white guilt or, or male guilt, but also thinking back to uh, Nazi Germany, uh, Germany after World War II. I was saying all Germans are guilty. But if you do that, then you're, what you're doing is you're you're covering up for for the bad things that people for the you're covering up the things that people who are really evil actually done and in the same way i think you're completely right in stressing the potentiality for salvation instead of actually uh, everyone achieving salvation because if everyone achieves salvation then we're we're ignoring almost the good deeds of of men I completely agree with you. And I think that the idea of the impossibility to um, group or characterize everyone as guilty or everyone as good is exactly the very problem that we often see in society. And that's something that we must must avoid, because the moment you say everything is guilty, then you start to see situations where perhaps the, the claims made start contradicting themselves. And a good example of this would perhaps be, you know, how some people like to raise a toxic masculinity as their default de facto argument against any kind of sexual indifference. And they're like, oh, um, certain uh, relationships are balanced towards the males. Maybe that's the case, toxic masculinity. Then someone raised suicide rates of males, and they also call that toxic masculinity. And you're like, well, your argument doesn't really make sense. Surely, surely toxic masculinity doesn't lead to men killing themselves, because surely if men were in control, they wouldn't just like jump off the side of the building for no reason, right? So, I mean, I think that that is perhaps a very... At least a physical illustration of the problem that we have discovered in some. Degree. Well, I mean, I mean, also, it, I find a problematic this kind of characterization 
because if you think about it, Antigone is the very embodiment of toxic masculinity. <laughs> and and uh, Greta Thunberg, <laughs> if you're trying to classify her, you, should, you can also call her toxically masculine. Well, so similarly, people like Job are, for example, are also toxically masculine. So if, if, you, if you try to characterize it, you, you soon realize that things are not so uh, clear cut as, as it, they seem to be from a certain standpoint. But I also want to ask you a question about this universalism, because there's, there's the idea of, for, for Christianity, of loving your neighbor and loving everyone as, your, as yourself. But one of the critiques that one, one can make, perhaps, and this links to our idea, our previous discussion on judgment and on this universal guilt, is whether this universal love is actually no love at all. It's only this abstract love that, that diminishes all love. Well, I think that the love that we're talking about here is really a love which is offered and only is actualized when received. And I think that, that is the true way to look at love because you can love um, someone all you want, either in Eros way or Agape or any in any way of love, but unless it's received, it's not actualized, it's not shared. And that is exactly what I think happens and occurs here. God is universally um, offering that potential for love amongst all humans, but that is not always received by humans. And I think that that is the significant difference of, of the situation perhaps. So I, I see that you mean uh, what differentiates this kind of Christian love, perhaps, is this quality of giving. And it it sort of reminds me of what I've, I've been reading on uh, SCP on Max Shaler, and it said he differentiated his, he said philosophy started with love, but this love is exactly what you said, a love of giving, giving out an agape in contrast with Eros, where he thought that agape love is this love that gives, which which you characterized perfectly, and it also reminds me of a play on words that Heidegger used, because he he used this German expression, I think, of of being or to be, and it literally just means it gives, and he thought that men's role on earth is to receive this giving from being to let things be by being given and receiving the being. And I think it applies perfectly to the example of love. I think that is so interesting. And perhaps before we move on on this discussion, we could perhaps view this um, sentence, verse 19, which is very interesting. He says, then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. In a previous discussion, we talked about the importance of Water. But I think what here is more interesting is, is that God opening her eyes to the well of water, which seems that the well of water was either there all along or perhaps we're talking about a more of um, existential sense of um, water in the sense that you're looking at the situation. You're like, well, that is opening your eyes to the water is not suddenly seeing a physical water, but un being under understanding the meaning of life or the well, the source of life, perhaps. And that might be another reading as well. Yeah. I agree. And also this opening of one's eyes fits perfectly with our uh, discussion of love as giving. This opening of one's eyes can be seen as a sort of receiving from the world. And whenever one's looking into the world, one is also in some sense receiving from it. And that, that's the beautiful thing of being in being human beings.